I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. This episode is brought to you by Digital Ocean. Let's go. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. It's Arlen. Thank you so much for coming back, taking a listen. Whether it's your first time or you've been around since we started just last month, (laughs) really appreciate you. Couldn't appreciate your feedback more. You've been subscribing. You've been sharing. You've been leaving comments. You've been tweeting me and posting on Instagram and, and DMing me. It's just been amazing. It's only, I can't believe we've only been around for like a month or so. Um, I am stoked about this episode. This is, uh, this is a good one, y'all. Get the notebook out. So we're going to be talking to someone who's had his first million, his second million, his fifth million, his 10th, his 20th, and so on. This is Jeff Ulrich from, from Earwolf and Midroll, which are, he's a pioneer in the podcasting world. It's just as simple as that. He, in 2010, started Earwolf, which is a comedy podcast network that creates a ton of um, properties. Some of your favorite comedians are on Earwolf. After the success of having this, you know, content heavy, really um, progressive platform, of podcasts, he said, well, what do we do with it? How do we monetize that? And he created Midroll to not only monetize Earwolf, but to monetize other people's podcasts and help them, you know, generate millions in uh, collective revenue. And so those are really two valuable properties. And uh, just a couple of years ago, they were, they were purchased. They were, maybe it was 2015, 2016, they were purchased publicly stated it was something like 50 or 60 million dollars this deal and Jeff as you'll hear in this interview owned the majority of that because this is my favorite part because no one would invest in him so in 2010 he's walking around town saying I have this great idea and I, I know there's something we can do here and no one would give him the time of day only a couple of people really backed what he was doing a his wife Darlene and B Scott his co-founder and they uh, they went all they went all in they went for it and so a few years later it turned into this uh, jackpot for him and his family and we'll we'll talk about a lot of things in this episode we talk about sobriety we talk which is you know deeply personal for me and for him we talk about how the early days of starting this company and then what happens when you overnight are a millionaire. When you go from having not much money at all, being kind of broke, to having a little bit of money, being much more comfortable, but still not rolling in it, to then, bam, you are a millionaire. And not even, you know, one or two or three million, but, you know, tens of millions of dollars overnight. It's a, 
Really, really interesting conversation. Jeff is um, super candid and generous with his time and information, and he doesn't have a wall up, and you'll you'll see that. This turned out to be only the second podcast interview he's ever done after selling the companies, Earwolf and Midroll. The first one was with Gimlet, which as some of you know, I was on Gimlet startup season in 2018. So I know those cats. Um, I the, the episode that Jeff was on is amazing. I listened to it before we did our podcast. So check that out. If you, uh, if you dig what you hear here, just go right on over to his, his Gimlet interview and you'll hear, um, you know, different pieces that were not mentioned here. And then we have pieces that were not mentioned on it. So it's really a great listen. You're going to hear from one of the pioneers of podcasting, giving a candid account of what it's like to go from being broke to being a multimillionaire overnight. Thanks for being here, first of all. Of Thanks course. for coming Thanks over to my place. I've, you've hosted me at your place twice now, and now you're over here, and I feel uh, very honored to have you here. And we I can't remember what month it was that we met. It was September is when okay. we had the party for DeRay. Yeah, DeRay had his book launch. Yeah. And you hosted um, a really awesome gathering for him to be able to read from it and and kind of galvanize people around his messaging. Yeah. And you had some interesting people in the room. And I remember that night, um, I, I had like a surreal moment because you, you had all kinds of people in the room and a lot of celebrities. And I remember going around the corner to go to your room because you said I could place my magazines because I carried my magazines everywhere right. I go. My cover <laughs> fast company who wouldn't. Um, and I, you said I could place them in your, in your room. So I went around the corner and I saw Tracy Ellis Ross, who I have met before, but still it's Tracy Ellis Ross, Megan Mullally and Jenna Fisher and you just chit chatting, just having, just having a little conversation. And it was around the corner. So I promise you for, I don't know how much time it was, you know, whatever measurable, you know, measurable amount of time. I truly thought for a moment that I had died <laughs> and that this was like the hallway to heaven or the hallway to the afterlife. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I believe in heaven, but it was like the, this is what happens after. Yeah. And then there's something that's going to happen next. Yeah. And I was like, this is the most surreal <laughs> And so, first of all, why do you know those people? <laughs> why were they at your house? Because we'll get into your story. But I want to know, why do you, um, I'm assuming it has something to do with your Chicago background. You know, I knew a lot of comedians before and some of it was from Chicago. Mm. And I had spent some time at Second City. And so I had met a bunch of folks there who were older than me because I was training there when I was like 20 and 21 years yeah. old. And that was very young. Um, but no, I think, you know, I met a lot of folks through my partner, Scott Aukerman, who mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, a very integral part of the comedy world. And then just people coming through Earwolf, you know, I met a lot of people that way. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really start to build friendships with folks until after I sold the business. Okay. Um, 
you know, like you're friendly with people. Yeah. But prior to that, everything, you know, it was like I had employees and I had partners and I had associates and I had talent that signed contracts with me. Mm -hmm. But there was always kind of like a relationship that had to do with the podcasting stuff. And the personal stuff felt secondary to that. And, you know, I was working a lot. Um, and so it really has been in the last several years mm -hmm. that I've spent time getting to know people that I otherwise hadn't known. Right. And do you feel like, um, people have treated you differently since you sold your company or any, anyone has treated you differently? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I listened to a couple of the episodes of this podcast okay. and you, this came up before. You know, there is something about people want to, um, it's, it's easier to be successful if you've already been successful. Mm -hmm. Um, people want to spend more time with you if they think that you have some sort of secret sauce. Yep. And so when, when you have like a successful exit and in, in our case, it was the first of its kind in the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, it's easy to, to, to people to have this kind of like mythology around yeah. it and you, um, that makes, I would imagine makes you a little bit more attractive to people mm -hmm. who, who want to be successful or who want to understand how you did it or who appreciate what you did or, or any of those things. Yeah. Um, also I wasn't available before, you know, like I was working 18 hour days, right. seven days a week. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't socializing. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to events. I didn't go to openings. I didn't go to premieres. I, I wasn't a part of, I, 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 still, I still don't, but I, <laughs> I, I wasn't in, you know, it, I saw people backstage at UCB on Tuesday nights because my partner had a live show that he produced there. And we would do two hours every Tuesday at La Poubelle on mm, Franklin. I know La Poubelle. They used to have a wonderful shrimp crepe that they discontinued, but oh, we're not going to talk about we're that. We're not going to talk, just like Jenna's show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so Scott and I would meet there from yeah. like 5.30 or this 6. That's your business partner you're talking yeah, about. Sorry, yeah, sorry, Scott yeah. Ackerman. Yeah. Um, from like 5.30 or 6 to 8 mm. every Tuesday. And then we'd walk next door to UCB yeah. and hang out backstage and he yeah. would produce the show. That's the Upright Citizens Brigade. Yes. Brigade for anyone who is uh, not in LA or yeah, hip. Yeah, sorry. So... So Scott and I, um, that was our time was those two hours at La Poubelle and then going and, <clears throat> excuse me, hanging out, yeah. uh, for the show. And so, you know, I would talk to people as they come through and again, you develop relationships and you become friendly with folks, but it was not, I was not social. I, I was very busy mm. and that was my focus. Have you developed a really good filter for people who are coming around, sniffing around for the wrong reasons. I haven't found it to be, I think probably as extreme as I've heard okay. other people experience. Um, for one, you know, like this is only the second interview I've done since we sold the business. Is it? Yeah. Oh, the first one was Gimlet and it was yeah. a fantastic interview. Thank you. And we have that history with Gimlet. As yeah. You know. Yes. But so, so I haven't really told this, the story. Yeah. Um, I didn't do press before I sold the business. I was busy running the business. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, the banker who sold it, uh, who sold our company kind of would always comment on how our ground game was phenomenal, but our right. air, air game was terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's like, the best way though. You did a terrible job of promoting yourself and telling yeah. the story. Um, so it wasn't like I had people beating down my door. I yeah. mean, in the first few days, there was a lot of like real estate brokers and money managers mm. and people who scour whatever transaction wires there are yeah. and then are, are cold calling you or emailing you or LinkedIn you, you know, and trying to like 
get you to give you your, your money to them or buy your house to them or whatever. But by and large, I feel like, um, you know, people have pretty much treated me similar to the way they did before. That's very good. And and so let's talk, let's dig in a little bit about what happened. Let's just break it down. What is Earwolf? How do you describe it? It was a comedy podcasting company that created, distributed, monetized podcasts for comedians. Right. So, um, you know, let's see. So Scott's show, Comedy Bang Bang, How Did This Get Made with Paul Shear and Jason Manzoukas and, and um, June. Um, Tig Nataro had a show called Professor Blastoff with us. Jeff Garland had a show, the Sklar Brothers. This would have been, though, years ago. 2010. I mean, yeah, 2010. Started. Yeah. And it, I, I mean, we're listening to a podcast right now. This is what we're producing right now. And I just think we're just so, so early. This is the tip of the iceberg of what's to come and audio in general, but in podcasts, especially, it's exciting. So, nine, 10 years ago, um, you had this this idea, this vision, it was it. do you think it was like being visionary or do you think it was like paying attention or a little bit of both? I guess I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. Mm. Um, first of all, the, the, the ecosystem compared to today yeah. was barren. Yes. You know, um, it's crazy to think what's changed. I mean, nine years ago, I think I told you 200 yards away, was our first studio from, from where we are right now at yeah. my home. And it was, um, a 225 square foot room with oh, that's a, little, a bathroom, a little anteroom. <laughs> so the, the studio itself was, I think about 175 square feet. And we had an, an air conditioning unit in the window that you had to turn off mm. whenever there was recording. Right. And it would become a hot box within four minutes, even in the winter, it was so hot in there. <laughs> we had a hip hop producer against one wall. A lot of bass. A lot of bass. And we had a pot dispensary the next wall. So a lot of stink. Mm -hmm. We had um, people would come out and go for smoke breaks inadvertently right outside of our window. Oh, my goodness. So when you had to turn the air conditioning off, you could hear them talking through the air conditioner on their phone calls during their breaks. Not ideal for an audio company. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. Yes. But it was $500 a month in rent, mm -hmm. which was all we could afford. We started with $30,000 and we couldn't afford much. Um, you know, I remember Bob Odenkirk was a guest one day and a roach ran across the recording oh. table while, while they were recording. Um, so yes, very humble beginnings yes. and very close to where we are now. Talk a little bit about the 30,000 because I don't want anyone to mistake that 30,000 from being your little nest egg that you had, or your, you know, that was just a little check you wrote yourself. How, how hard was it to get that 30,000? Yeah. I mean, well, $22,015 came from my wife's Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. And she had been saving for years. Years. Yeah. And that was all we had in terms of like retirement, anything. Um, we didn't own any real estate. We didn't, she had a car. Um, she had, we bought a secondhand 2005 Toyota Prius. Um, it was a nice car, and but your, like your wife's Darlene, Darlene. Yes. yes. And, uh, so we didn't have much and it came time to start the business and we, we decided we needed $30,000 and Scott was like, okay, I, I can put in six and we were going to put in 24. Mm. And then the day after his business manager was like, I think you should only put in three. Yeah. This was not like, oh, let's take 2% of everything we have and just 
you know, buy a lottery ticket. This was something we really needed to work. We were betting on ourselves and it was a little, a little scary, Mm -hmm. but not as scary as it should have been probably. Right. It probably probably wouldn't have done it if it were, if if you were in your right mind, just really thinking about how tough it could be. This is cliche, right? But like, if I knew then what I know now, Mm -hmm. like there's no way I, you know, Scott's show had a million downloads in the first nine months. And I thought that was something I could build a business around. And I did, but that's insanity. Like that is not something you can build a business around. I actually heard you say that uh, on the Gimlet podcast that, you know, it's funny now that a million seems so big to you, but back then relative, it was a big deal, right? I mean, it was, you were kind of picking up on the right signals. Yeah. It was just now because of some of the work you've done and what others have done that kind of pales in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, this getting back to the visionary thing, like I've been working hard, at least in my personal life to debunk the, the mythology around like the, the visionary kind of person. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of privilege. There's a lot of timing. There's a lot of good luck. Um, yes, you can work hard and you can have vision. Um, but I don't feel like, uh, this I've been compared to, to Steve jobs in small little mm-hmm. ways. And like, mm-hmm. I, I eschew that. I I'm, think- I'm going to get like a, a sound effect. That's like mic dropping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it was. I've been compared to Steve Jobs, yeah. but you don't subscribe to that. No. I, I mean, kinda, I'm kind of glad you don't because then that would make you kind of a jerk. Well, there's that too. But yeah. You can understand how others might have been impacted and affected by something that you came up with or thought about that no one else did. It just doesn't, it didn't feel like it then. And it mm. feels wrong to kind of revisionist history. Right. It, you know, yeah. like Scott and I always said, early days. Like if we had started three months earlier or three months later, we don't know that we would have survived Mm -hmm. because three months earlier was almost still too early. Yeah. And three months later, there was more competition already. Scott and his credibility within the comedy community uh, and his ability to listen to an audio file of a pilot episode and turn that into like three pages of notes that should cost a hundred thousand dollars. Like he's brilliant. Um, little plug for Scott, his new movie's coming out between two ferns. He's the co-creator between two ferns. I love that Um, too. And, you know, so we had, we had things going for us that were not just me and my brain or me and my vision. Um, there was a time and a place where, where I got a couple things, right. One was that this was a viable long-term medium that was going to grow and was going to be important in people's lives, that the the vehicles for distribution were going to continue to improve, that people's appetite for diverse content was going to continue to improve, and that it was something that did not compete in many ways with other forms of content because you were you can listen to things when you can't otherwise consume content, when you can't read or you can't watch. And so there were a couple like major tenants of the space that I got right. And then in terms of like our business, I I was right when I thought, you know, the issue here right now is that there isn't talent here. It was, it was essentially a hobbyist deal at the time. And so we worked really hard to bring talent in the space that allowed people to get excited and to go through the effort of downloading and listening to a file at a time when that was really hard to do. Um, and that was kind of the hard work 
of working through that early stages of where people didn't know how to find it. They didn't, there was no value proposition that made sense. And we had to fight through that. So I'm really excited about our sponsors for this episode, Digital Ocean. I spoke at their employee lunch a few months ago in New York City at their headquarters, and I was just blown away by their team, by their diversity in the room, by the community that they've built, the curiosity uh, of thought there. It was really, really fun, and they are some really cool people. So when we partnered to sponsor and launch this podcast, I was stoked. Let me tell you a little bit about what they are and who they are and what they're offering us. So DigitalOcean is a cloud platform that makes it easy for startups to launch high-performance modern apps and websites with simple, predictable pricing, no gotcha pricing, and a UX that developers around the world love. You can stop worrying about your cloud hosting and storage bills and have more time to just focus on your business. We all need more time. So that's not all. They want to make it even easier for new businesses to launch apps in the cloud. If you're a startup, don't miss out on applying for their incredible Hatch Incubator Program. Over 2,000 startups in DigitalOcean's Hatch have received amazing perks, like a year's worth of free cloud infrastructure credits, special events, prioritized support, technical training, and more. Learn more about DigitalOcean's global startup community and apply for Hatch at do.co slash backstage. That's do.co slash backstage. Right. And so for, um, for consumers of podcasts, you were bringing the talent and the content. And of course that was the B2B play too, because that's what they were selling to. But for the, the comedians themselves, you are providing something that was like a one-stop shop for them. So they didn't have to learn how to become their own uh, podcast producer and, and, and seller and all sorts of things. And I I imagine that kind of changed things too. Were you looking at anything as a model? No, I mean, well, I was looking at what not to do Mm. by looking at like TV and movies. Okay. So because of my kind of uh, DNA and my mentality, because Scott himself was a performer and a writer who had a, had a podcast and out of necessity, because at the time these were podcasts and people had to be talked into them. All three of those things conspire to us creating deals that were very artist friendly because that was like what we believed was the right thing to do and good business. So for once in your life, if you were a comedian and you showed up to do something, you actually owned your IP. Like we own the masters that we paid to, to record, but you could take your show and do whatever you want with it. You could do derivatives on it. Like it was yours. And that was something that was very uncommon um, in any creative endeavor in 2010. And then we also had splits that were, you know, not, I mean, I know people have TV shows that they created and their splits are, you know, 0.1% to 5%, like a very kind of small, whereas people had 50% splits on On the the podcast on what we were doing. Um, 30 to 50, actually, it's dependent on the show and how much we invested in it, but still just magnitude more than, but the money was low. So Mm -hmm. in terms of, it's like people weren't getting rich in the early days. Um, But all of a sudden, like, you know, somebody gets like a $10,000 check and they're like, I wasn't really expecting to get 
$10,000 from my podcast. Yeah. Like I can go on a really nice vacation with this. Yeah. And the money is what started to attract even more talent because we're, we're like, look, if you come and you do this and you take it seriously, we can actually pay you for your time. Yeah. Cause creatives, uh, want to be recognized for their talent, their gifts, their skills. And it's not always about just having the cash in hand. It's not about like this transactional thing. It's almost like this sort of recognition for your value and your yeah. work being worth something. It's similar to like athletes mm. where people are like, Oh, why is that guy complaining that he only got a hundred million dollar contract yeah. instead of a $120 million yeah. contract? And it's like, well, first of all, the owners are definitely doing better yes. in all of this stuff yes. than the athletes. Uh, so there's value there and we shouldn't say that the, the athletes don't deserve any of it. Um, but, you know, if that person is the best player in the league at their position and someone else is getting 120, like I understand why you're fighting to get that or more because mm -hmm. that's a measuring stick. And because the rest of us can't relate to those size numbers, it's easy to like call into a sports talk radio and criticize that player. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that that's fair. And there's and you can get even deeper there where there's just so it costs so much to be that person. Absolutely. It is just there's such a tax to be that person. And if in the case of someone like Serena Williams, if they're absolutely the reason that someone like me even watches the game to begin with, yeah. you're not talking about putting a number on her skill, which is right. immeasurable already. Right. You're talking about reinventing the game and, re and changing Absolutely. the landscape. And yeah. for a lot of just, I don't know why we're going to get let's deep, do but it. let's do let's it. Let's do it. Start you know, for a lot of folks, um, they, they're not able to be professional athletes for very long. So they have a short amount of time yeah. that they can earn money, yeah. but a long amount of time that they have to prepare to be that good. Yeah. And so um, anyways, yeah, I, I think that, um, it's important that creatives get, get paid properly. Yeah. And by the way, I'm sure if everyone who ever had a deal with us was listening, you know, 10% of them would be listening to this and be like, I didn't get a fair, like I should have gotten paid more for mm. my podcast. Like you're never going to make everybody happy, but if you have like a, a standard set way of treating people, that's fair, that's yeah. thoughtful. And, and like most of the time people are going to be happy with yeah. that. When do you think, cause it is, it is early times for podcasts. When do you think it becomes on par with having gotten a, a movie deal or a distribution? You know, when, when do you think, do you see a time period on that? Like we just need 10 more years of, going all out in the podcast landscape and it's on par with everything. Well, see, you're, you forget that it like blows my mind to think that this is the early days. Right. You know, again, like I'm like nine years mm -hmm. removed from mm -hmm. starting my first podcasting company. Um, but no, I think that it's already, that shift is happening mm -hmm. and it's where people who, who start podcasts and are successful at it, find that they're making more money than they are on the TV show that they're doing. Yeah. And that's happening. It's starting so, to happen already. It's starting to well, happen. Someone like Joe Rogan and, and people like that, but it's only a few people. That's the thing. Yes. Yeah. But even a few people, you know, going from zero to one is a hard thing. Mm -hmm. And so now, yeah, we're in like the, it's a handful of people, but I think when I sold mid roll, I want to say we had 12 millionaire podcasters that okay. we represented at the time. Explain mid -roll. And that was like four years ago. Explain mid-roll compared to ear to ear. Mid-roll was a monetization business that 
uh, essentially supported all podcasters. So whereas Earwolf was like a more of like a studio model, a full shop for everything related to doing a show, Midroll, you know, had like WTF with Mark Marin as a client. And the only thing that we did for Mark was sell ads. Monetize the content that you on, had created at, at Earwolf. No, that no, sorry. Oh, for so, anyone. Yeah. yeah. So WTF was not an Earwolf show. Okay. Um, like Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast was a client. Um, Bill Simmons, The Ringer, yeah. like that stuff. All of these we had, I, I don't even know what they have now, but at the time it was like 300 clients. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had realized that there was a need. I was in a position to, to solve that problem for people. Mm-hmm. And from a business perspective, it's really hard to start a 250,000 downloaded you know, every episode podcast. It was, I could sign to a week though, to mid roll. Wow. Like it was, it was much easier yeah, to grow. Yeah. You were, well, what's the word I'm looking for? It, I, um, I'm looking f- not agent. What's that word? Yeah, I don't even, it's cause we weren't agents, Yeah, but we essentially represented all like of these shows. like a record label? Would that be the same kind of? I guess, um, you know, yeah, there's no perfect mm. analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but we helped a lot of diverse podcasts make a lot of money yeah. and, and they still do. They're doing yeah. a great job. And that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that is what sold eventually. So I created Earwolf with Scott and then Midroll on my own. And then a company called Howl, which is now Stitcher premium. Mm-hmm. And that's a subscription business. And all that's three, that mic drop uh, sound effect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all three of those were packaged, um, in a parent company and sold together. Oh, okay. So mid-roll represented the vast majority. I think it was like 88% of the value that we received mm. in the sale came from mid-roll. And was the total uh, sale price ever public? Yes. They, they tweeted it. The, the buyers tweeted it, I think like two or three weeks after the sale. And what I've read was 50 million. Is that what it was tweeted? It was 50 million in cash and then 10 million earnout. Oh, okay. Very good. And so now going back then, while you were building this over however many years, when was it sold? 2015. So six or so years of building it? Five. Five. Or so, five or so, okay. mm-hmm. Were you? Were you balling? Like, were you just throwing lavish parties? <laughs> I wish people could see the look he gave me. <laughs> I mean, were you just throwing money in the air and just had all champagne no. parties? I mean, I didn't take a salary until the last year. Um, I did take uh, at some during the entire time I owned the company, I took $86,000 in sales commissions Mm -hmm. because I had previously been selling, doing, selling, doing the sales for the podcasters for free. Yeah. And then at some point I started charging 10% and I did that Mm -hmm. for 860,000 in revenue. And then I stopped. Um, and then I had, two years where I got $2,000 a month stipend. So yep. I got the 86 on the, the commissions and the 24 on the stipend and then a salary of 150,000 in the final year. So it's not like I didn't make any money. That's whatever, like 250,000 over mm-hmm. five years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so 50,000 a year on average, I took out of the business, mm-hmm. but by and large, all the money went back into the company. So I, I didn't have a car for the first three years. And then I bought a Hyundai Elantra, um, 2012, I think towards the tail end. Um, 
There were no parties. We had, well, we had a Christmas party at, at my house. Oh, um, that's terrible. You know, it was not <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and it wasn't the house you were at. It was oh, a, yeah, I imagine. a whole nother place. So what do you think afforded that? It was your wife was working still. Yes. And I mean, you, the reason I really love talking to you is because you're so self-aware. And I hate when people say that they're self-aware because then they're not. Mm. Because, but I can say it about you, right? You understand your privilege because it's almost like packaging, right? It has nothing to do with you. It's the packaging you're in. Yeah. And it's almost just logical fact that you have some privilege over other people, just like anyone. Right? Yeah. What do you think? Like I, I remember talking to Sophia Benz, who is a, one of the first employees at Spotify and she lives in Sweden. And she said, you know, in one of our episodes, and she said, so you, you kind of start off on the right foot in Sweden because they don't let you, kind of fall. Mm. And that was what afforded her mm -hmm. the ability to fail and try and experiment and, and yeah. not be scared. Do you think that, do you, when you think back on it, do you see yourself as like, oh, I had some privilege and that helped me? Or do you feel like you were flying to your pants? Um, well, I mean, can both be true? Absolutely. You know, like yeah. I was definitely flying by the seat of my pants. Um, although I had a plan and the thing that was weird was the, the vision or the plan, the business plan that I had set out with Scott on like day one, it actually happened, which never, that never happens that it like actually works the way you think it's going like to work. Projections and it was like, I, I was like, here, Scott, this is what, this is what the industry is going to do. And this is what we're, this is our role that's going to be in the industry. And you're telling me you don't like the word visionary. But you just described what a visionary. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I just, say it. I guess it's just I. I am not special in the sense that um, lots of people have lots of great ideas yeah. and lots of people work really hard. I just this morning read a tweet where essentially it was like, you know, show me the hardest working person in the world. I'll show you someone who is likely to be living in poverty. Yeah, like let's get over this idea that it's that working there's some hard. Specialness. Yeah, this yeah. secret sauce. You know. I, I want to own some part of it. You know, I, I did see an opportunity. I had the nerve slash gumption slash ignorance to drop everything and pursue it at pot potential great personal peril. Um, I worked really hard and I saw through and I executed on my vision. So like, I, I sure like, give me some credit for doing that. Mm. It's not easy to do. Yeah. But I, I think that's maybe like a third of the story. I think the other two thirds are all the things. I mean, I literally have a list that I made one day. I gave myself 10 minutes to write every single kind of non-traditional or, or unassuming source of privilege that I had had. And I just kind of brainstormed it out. And, you know, it's like, I didn't have violence in my life. Mm. That's something that I think a lot of people who haven't had violence in their life don't think about mm -hmm. as privilege. Mm. Preach. You know, and um, it's, I had a baseball card collection when I was a little kid. And so I learned math faster than I would have otherwise, because mm. I had to figure out slugging percentages before they taught you in school. Mm. And if you don't have parents and grandparents who can afford to spend a thousand dollars in 1983, which we didn't have a lot of money, but that that's a lot of money. Yeah, over time you're collecting and yeah. yeah. Um, then maybe I don't learn math so quick. Mm. Um, the baseball card thing was a big deal. You know, I learned how to buy and sell. I created markets. I, I ended up getting suspended for running like an illegal gambling operation out of <laughs> the recess at my sixth grade <laughs> class, you know, but 
There's so many things in my life that I feel really fortunate. I, I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I was an alcoholic for 19 of the first of the 60 months, the first 19 of the 60 months that yeah. I operated. A year the and a half of five years, you were what you call a functioning alcoholic, which I yes. relate to in every way. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, built, built empires while being completely blasted. Right. Yeah. And, and you're kind of an exception to like, it's not common, mm. you know, it's the epitome of failing up when you're right. able to drink your way through a third of an enterprise that started with $30,000 and five years later sold for 50 million. Mm -hmm. There's something at play there that goes beyond some Steve Jobs bullshit mythology right. uh, of this like podcasting visionary. You know, I, I got lucky. Mm -hmm. um, I employed people who I was able to, to pay very little when I didn't have anything to pay. Mm -hmm. And I probably couldn't do that today. I basically made up for it by giving people a retroactive, like an acquisition bonus that I didn't owe them because I recognized that if I knew how much I was, that the company was going to be worth at the time they were earning that money, mm -hmm. that I would have given them more, but I didn't have more to give them. Today, I don't think I could have survived with the minimum, um, minimum wage laws that right. currently exist or the way they've changed how you look at contractors versus employees. So that alone, like timing wise, if I had started the company five years later, the state of California probably would have rightfully prevented me from mm -hmm. operating in the way that allowed me to essentially make good later. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had the resources to do it the right way. What, what, was there someone influential in your life or where did you start having so much self-reflection? I've always had I've always been that way hmm. um but when when I now I don't have to work uh, yeah. I, I have a lot going on in my life but I don't have a job yeah. and so when you have privilege that turns into success that allows you time I I don't know I think it just makes it a lot easier mm. for you to be able to reflect on on this some of it is surrounding myself with people who are not like me who have different stories to tell that I can see myself in them in some, you know, it's like searching for the the similarities instead of the yeah. differences. Yeah. And, and I start to realize like over time, I'm not as special as people told me or that I even thought at one point. Mm. And why is that? And it's my job to unpack that. It's my job to try and figure it out. And then it's my job to try and help use what I have to make it better for people who aren't in the same situation that I'm in. So you're looking for a strength in that. It's not like you're just trying to dismantle this as sort of uh, self-deprecating. You're trying to just kind of, to me, it feels like you're just trying to find this balance so that you're, you can spend all of these years kind of doing it right or continue on that path you try, I mean, to look, get it I'm, right. I'm sitting here and just being like, it's hard. You know, yeah. I struggle with this stuff. I, I just started seeing a therapist and I label some of how I feel as survivor's guilt because I don't know what, oh. how better to label it. Yeah. Like it's not traditional survivor's guilt, but you get into this thing where you're like, well, why am I the one who gets to just like go on hikes every day and be a rich guy? You Cause know, like, you feel like you got lucky and, and uh, two thirds of it was luck. Yeah. Like such a huge proportion of it mm. was luck slash timing slash circumstance, mm -hmm. like whatever word you want to mm -hmm. use that isn't directly assigned to me and my abilities and my vision and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so like, I have to reckon with that. Mm-hmm. How much of this is mine versus how much of it, you know, was given to me slash did I take that, that I shouldn't have? Well, the good thing is, I think what you, I mean, you're pro- probably already figuring this out and with your therapist, but that could have, if you believe in that space, and I think I understand what you're saying, that that money could have gone to someone who was a jerk or who did, who used it in a really wrong way or who, you know, and so it, it's almost like, um, you know, different people are, have this power and you're one of them. And instead of spending any time beating yourself up about it or fretting over it at that time, all of that time should be like, okay, I got it. I got it for us. We're good. Okay. Now what can I do with it? And that seems to be what you're doing now in this next stage in your, in your life. I mean, trying, trying, but you know, some days are better than others. Um, do you feel, do you ever feel guilty or ashamed when someone says you're a millionaire? Is that weird to you? Or is that kind of cool? Or it doesn't happen. Honestly. No one says, Oh, I'm saying it. You're a millionaire. Well, <laughs> <laughs> How does that make you feel? <laughs> it doesn't, it's not something, you know, it's very uncommon to have conversations about money. Yeah. Um, I found that with this podcast that some yeah. people have never really talked about it because we're, this is a really cool, you know, situation because I mean, you didn't have, you, you weren't a millionaire before you sold your company. Right. And then the day it was signed and things were transferred over, you're able to kind of look back very recently and reflect on how that felt. What was the day after like for you? Wow. What was the day after? Like, I, it's so not glamorous. Arlen. Okay. It was just, I was just exhausted. Mm. Um, getting things to the finish line was so, it was the hardest thing I did. I mean, of all the work I had done, um, that seven month process of, of selling the company and especially that kind of last yard, um, was so hard and difficult and exhausting. I got, I was getting no sleep, um, that, the day after I was just tired. And the day after that, Darlene and I had taken two days on our own to go to Palm Springs to just relax and celebrate. Mm. And we had our babysitter stay with Arden. And, uh, during the afternoon of the first day we were gone, we get a phone call that there was a terrible accident at the playground and Arden was on her way to the hospital. Oh, wow. Head cut open. Wow. So, it went from like that to like rushing home during uh rush hour uh, from Palm Springs to LA to, to make sure that Arden was okay. Um, so right away, it was a weird time, you know, like yeah. it did. That's the thing that, um, and I don't get into this now I'm getting into this to all these strangers listening. Um, I don't like to complain about how I'm retired and I have, I have this money, but the truth is, is that it doesn't solve all of your problems, especially when you have like a young child, because you don't, you know, this idea of like retired that you grow up with is for people who are older and who don't have responsibilities anymore. Mm -hmm. They, they, the whole point is like, you can kind of just relax and enjoy. And so if you don't have kids or if you're older, sure, it's a whole different ball game, but you know, Arden was three, three years old when we sold our life. You know, I still had to like wipe her nose and wipe her ass and, (laughs) you know, people still cut you off on the road and you still go to the grocery store. You're still human. You still bleed, you know, like you're a person and, and your daughter falls at the playground and you've got to like deal with that. And so, um, 
it, it changed, but like it didn't change as much as you would have expected. There was that moment of like seeing the money hit the bank account where you, you just like, it was surreal. It didn't feel real, mm. even though I knew it was. Um, and you felt like you were watching someone else's life. Because mm. for us, and again, this is different from, I think, a lot of people on your show. We almost had that lottery winner experience where we had, we didn't have any money. And then we signed the papers and then we had yeah. all the money. Yeah, There wasn't this buildup. We weren't accumulating wealth over time. Every penny went right back into the business. I mean, we grew 200% a year, five years in a row without ever borrowing a dollar from anyone. That's hard to do. And the only way you can do that is to not be taking money yeah, out as you go. over yeah. and over again. Wow. And I mean, there's so many things that come up, that come to my mind when you talk about the story of your daughter. Um, I have this thing where I'm like, I'm paranoid. I'm a paranoid person. I'll say it. And I've said it many times. I feel like and I think someone's, I think it was Brene Brown. Someone said that um, like joy was the hardest emotion for humans to accept. Mm -hmm. I always think, you know, it can't get too good mm -hmm. because if it ever did, something else would happen. I'd get a call yeah. from my mom, something's wrong. Or, right. When that happened that day, the day after, did you feel like, did I, you feel weird? Like, oh no, is this real life or? No, I didn't feel, no, I didn't feel that. Um, I remember feeling like a, a why me after mm. Arden got hurt Yeah, of like, I felt sorry for myself that I wasn't able to just relax for even this like 48 hours wow. and enjoy what had happened. Yeah. But I mean, obviously I wasn't upset with her. It was like an sure, accident, sure, sure. but I did, I did have a little bit of a pity party for probably a day after where I felt like all I, all I needed was just a little, like, why couldn't I have better luck? Yeah. Yeah. And is, is your <clears throat> sort of path to self-enlightenment, do you think today, if that were to happen, you'd have the same reaction? No, I'm, I'm very different now and I have a different perspective. And, um, in a lot of ways, you know, I, I joke with Darlene that at this point, I feel like I'm so woke. I have insomnia, <laughs> you know, like it's actually to the point where I have a hard time enjoying things now because all I see is the oppression yes. and the injustice yes. and the systemic so kind of obstacles. You're seeing the world through the eyes of a black woman. Well, that I would never say that that's very, in a way that's what you're describing that, that, that sort of uh, open wound where it is difficult to just enjoy things as they are instead of saying, oh, you know, you see the kind of person behind the curtain of what's really happening. And, you're yes. like, ah. and then you're in your body and you're like, well, I, I could overlook this and get away with it or I could not. And, you know, how much energy do I have for the day? You know? Well, the thing is, is that it's the epitome of privilege mm -hmm. is to see something that's wrong and not do anything about it because it doesn't affect you. Like that's, that's privilege. Word. Right. Word. And so, you know, when I have bad days and I have bad days, um, where I'm burnt out still and I'm tired and I'm depressed and I feel like I'm not making enough of a difference, but I don't know what to do to, to do that. Um, you know, I feel like, man, I, 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 how I don't deserve to feel burned out. I don't have the right to feel like I'm a little depressed today mm. because there are single parents 
single parents of color, single parents with kids with disabilities who do not have the luxury to call it in that day mm. and say, like, I'm just not feeling it today. Life's hard. I need a break. Um, and I struggle with the fact that that is my reality. Yeah. And at the same time, it's it, it, you can see, like, this is complicated stuff. It is complex. Because you, know, you, you just write it off as, like, white mm. guilt. But, you but have that would that, take away your humanity. You have that whole... You got to put your own mask on first thing. That's true. You know, like I'm not good to anybody if I am so burnt out and all that kind of stuff where I can't help. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm like trying to work through it and figure mm -hmm. it out and talk to people and, you know, ask for help and do my best. Well, some of the some of the, my favorite people and the people I look up to or look over at or whatever and or re read about, they their entire life was about self-reflection. Mm. And I try to do that. I mean, I try to evolve every day and try to, you know, the worst thing is making the same mistakes over and over again. And so um, just in the, in the act of thinking about it and, and wanting to be better and wanting to see things through the lens of other people. I mean, I think that's just, it's, it's miles ahead of a lot of people. And so, um, and unfortunately I mean, you are, you have this, you're like, you're a business man, but you have the soul of a, of an artist, mm -hmm. I guess. And maybe cause you started off with the comedy and writing yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Cause you, you know, artists kind of can't, they can't be okay with themselves all the time. Yeah. You're, you're surrounded by them. So you probably know that. Um, but you know, I, I would try to find maybe find 10% less, uh, beating yourself up. <laughs> and that's, that's a common the theme of 10%. people I spend time with, yeah. um, are, are, yeah, tell me that. And yeah. I'm working on it, but yeah. it is, you know, yeah, it's not easy for me. It's not easy. And so that, I mean, it's just one more thing. It's just one more layer. This is why I wanted to do this series because it's one more layer of what is it really like to have a million of something, you know, yeah. what is that? Because we were chasing it. I remember, when I was 18, I wanted to be a million, millionaire by the time I was 21. And then it would change to 30 and then mm -hmm. it changed to 40 at like 32. And then the last five years, I was just like, I don't necessarily need to chase that number. It's sure. not that important to me. And then it's funny because things started happening where I can now see that I will be. Yeah. And I've raised, you know, several million dollars for my company, but uh, it's like, it, it's completely, it's one of those things of what are you chasing? And then mm -hmm. once you're there, What's yeah. so? How do you how do you keep yourself busy? You keep saying that you're retired, but I know that you're sure. doing a ton. Your, your, your schedule is off the chain. I literally um, just a couple days ago decided to stop working on. I had started working on something called the Voting Rights Association. Yeah, and I'm eight months in, and I have been looking for a co-founder slash ED because I wasn't qualified or available to run it, mm. and. It was tough, you know. I had I had Stacey Abrams who was on my advisory board. Stacy. I had uh, Vinita Gupta, Kristen Clark, um, Maria Teresa Kumar, a, a gazillion like amazing policy advisors. Um, I had a couple great candidates, and and I ran out of steam. Like I mm. I was so burnt out. I had a hard time um, hard time doing it, and it was really difficult because I made a lot of progress and I care so much about it. And it's like a systemic thing that I could impact. 
And I called Stacy because I didn't take anyone's money yet. Mm. You know, people had pledged money, but I hadn't taken it. And I had been funding it myself. I hadn't hired any employees yet, even though I had been trying to, it just hadn't happened yet. Um, so Stacy was my only kind of like stakeholder that I had to call and say like, this is where my head's at. And I gave her like a little speech about where I was at and how it was frustrating for me. But like, I really felt like I had to, to stop working on it. And I said, you know, it's, it's a bummer to, to fail at this. I really care about it. And she said, um, are you done? And I was like, "Uh Oh <laughs> yeah, Uh-oh. I'm done. She's like, well, I want to give you some feedback. Stacey Abrams. And, and I want to push back on what you said. Mm. I was like, Oh no, she's going to tell me I got to keep doing this. <laughs> and my anxiety like level went through the yeah. roof, like in a moment. Yeah. And she said, you know, well, as far as I'm concerned, you had, you had four pre-existing commitments to this. One was your daughter. One was your wife. One was your health. One was your sobriety. Mm-hmm. And right now you can't put those four things first because you're trying to put this first mm-hmm. and you need to give yourself permission. She's like, I don't want you to use that word failure. Yes. Um, you tried, you put a lot of yourself and a lot of your money into this and you can't keep doing it and it's not your fault and it's okay. And she basically gave me permission to not beat the shit out of myself. Yeah. Um, so, so that's something that's just ended. And I actually do feel some, some joy and relief. And like, now I can focus on being a full-time dad, which is something that I've never done. I've always had mm, a side hustle, something, you know, even in retirement of some project that I was trying to do that was nonprofit. Um, but it's hard because, you know, I don't like the world I see around me. Mm. And again, I feel like I got really lucky mm-hmm. and it was an excruciating process to go through to, to decide that this was enough. But at the end of the day, I'm no longer the person I was when I started Earwolf. I don't have the resiliency. I'm still burnt out. And I have, and Stacey's right. I mean, she like knows me as well as a 10 year long therapist. I didn't have those commitments when I started Earwolf. And she's like, the person you used to be like wound up in the hospital, almost died, wasn't, you know, wasn't sober, mm. wasn't healthy, wasn't there for your family. Why, why do you keep acting like you want to be that person again? Mm. That's not the person you want to be. Like, I like the person you are now and that's who you should be. Mm. And, and so that's what I'm working on. Wow. Well, Stacey Abrams does it again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she she's is, amazing. She's a real right? one. Yes. Yeah. And it seems to me that you, um, you haven't spoken about this, but I, I've seen it. You catalyze other people and that, that in itself, I mean, can be even, it's a scalable way of, of getting some of the change that you want to see made and have, have it happen without having to put yourself, rake yourself through the coals. Yeah. So that's something that you feel like you feel comfortable in that pocket. Yeah. I mean, cause I don't know, for whatever reason, that is something that feels very doable to me mm-hmm. is things where I just have to kind of show up and do a thing and it's useful to someone. Yeah. And even if I do that over and over again, since they're one time things, mm-hmm. they, none of them feel like a commitment that's too overwhelming yeah. to sign up for yeah. right now. Um, I don't know what the future brings. I don't know. I'm 44. I don't know if I never feel capable of starting anything again. Or if that changes, um, or if I do just stay in this lane where I'm opportunistic and I look for things that I feel like I specifically can add a lot of value to that I believe in. And then I Mm -hmm. just, you know, write the check or show up to the thing 
or make the calls or, you know what I mean? Whatever it is I can do. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm in a bit of identity crisis right now. I don't know who I am or what I'm going to be. So I have to Mm -hmm. figure that out and I have to give myself a little bit of permission to have space to do it. Absolutely. And you, you are young and you have um, kind of the world at your fingertips now because of the, the fortune that's come in. And uh, it's, I guess it's going to be, it's going to be about how you will that, you know, if you let it willed you right. <laughs> or the other way around. Right. Uh, but yeah, please, please take as much time as you need to figure out what you want to do or not figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, like the, the, I think everybody around you and Stacy's showing that it's like everybody just wants you to, to be okay. Like just to, to be okay with yourself and, yeah. and you're healthy. It's almost like, it's almost like, don't be afraid to come out of the closet because but all we want is a healthy kid. You know, yeah, like yeah. that's right. It's just you, you, um, the, the expectations from your friends and family are that they can be around you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. Well, um, thank you so much for, for this. I think it's, um, I'm going to probably have to have a, a an entire season of this of this series that is just part two mm-hmm. <laughs> of every of every conversation yeah. I have because yeah. I just just getting started and and um, I would love to learn so much more about your journey. But I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and um, I will uh, anytime Tracy's over at your house. Okay. <laughs> You call me if you need me to deliver some pizza or, you know, help you with the bath, whatever you need, I'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thanks, Arlen. Hey, so I'd love to talk to you and keep the conversation going. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at Arlen was here. That's A-R-L-A-N was here. Stick around too, because I will let you know when my new book is going to be in pre-order. Now that's coming out in uh, 2020. It'll be out as the real book. Oh my goodness. And it'll be you'll be able to pre-order it most likely this year. So stay tuned. I'll let you know all about that on Twitter, on Instagram, and on this podcast. Thank you again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Your First Million, get in touch with me. Um, Right now, it's super easy to do so. You just email me at arlenhamilton at gmail. That's A-R-L-A-N-H-A-M-I-L-T-O-N at gmail.com and uh, put in the subject that you want to that you're thinking about sponsoring and I'll give you some more information Um, this is a really highly engaged audience really really uh, educated either through traditional means or through grit and tenacity or a little bit of both and uh, yeah these are the people you want to be talking to you got, you got aspiring founders, you've got in the trenches founders, you've got aspiring angel investors and active angel investors. You've also got venture capitalists, you've also got limited partners. And then you have people who are listening in to learn all about what all of that means. And so it's a really interesting group of people. Check it out. Thank you again, Digital Ocean, for sponsoring. Your First Million is produced and edited by Anna Eichenauer and senior producer Brian Landers. Additional audio mixing and mastering by Alfred Rook Hamilton. Additional production by Chacho Valadez. Executive producer, Arlen Hamilton.